Wednesday night of the long-awaited coming of Christ, as he, on that night, began that process of reconciliation, as he came to earth so that he could save sinless man, and he could bring a sinful, rebellious man back into relationship with a holy God. And it's during this Advent season that we sing songs like Silent Night, and we have times to reflect quietly. But we know that the time of Advent, or the time of waiting for Christ, or the time of Advent helps us remember the waiting that took place in the Old Testament. It helps remember, helps us remember the waiting that took place as those waited for Christ to come. And through Advent, what we get a chance to do is gives us an opportunity to link our hearts to those ancient prophets who pined and waited for the coming of the Christ that many of them passed away long before Christ actually came. So in a very similar way, Advent is here to remind us that we too are waiting for his, not his arrival, but his return. But this morning, if we're also honest with ourselves, we can look at the way many people celebrate Christmas, and, and we ourselves sometimes have the tendency to celebrate Christmas, that Christmas is not a time of where we pause and we reflect. Instead, Christmas has become a time where it's very busy and very active, and it's easy for us to forget about what Christ has done and who Christ is. So this today, as we have an opportunity to gather together, I wanted to remind us of the meaningfulness of waiting. I want to also encourage us that potentially we need to make changes to our activities so that we do not turn from the gospel this year and instead of giving ourselves over to a worldly view that says waiting is pointless or waiting is worthless, let us be reminded that there's purpose in waiting. So this morning I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it out And turn with me to the blank page of Scripture. If you have a Bible that we provided, it is the 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 page 684. So take out a Bible and turn to page 684. It's the page between the Old Testament and the page between the New Testament. So if you don't have a Bible, just go to Malachi and then go to the next page. And if you look, this is my Bible. My Bible, the page is blank. So look for this page in your Bible and you're probably in the right place. So this morning I want us to turn there, and I want us to spend a few moments contemplating the blank page of Scripture. Now it's not literally there as we look at the scrolls and we look at the way God has revealed himself throughout time. There is not really a blank page, but this page is there in our Bibles to remind us of the 400 years that God was silent. For between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was 400 years in which God chose not to speak to his people. Now, God was very active during that time, but there weren't any prophets that came with messages of the Lord, but it was a time in which there were silent nights. And so this morning, I want us to spend time looking at the last, the the silent page, but I want us to look back. So go the page right before that, and you'll come to the end of Malachi. And I want us today, as we spend a few moments contemplating the, the blank page in the 400 years of silence, I also want us to see what was on God's heart and what was on God's mind as he is getting ready to enter into this time of silence. What was he saying to his people? What were the things that he wanted them to know? What were the things that they wanted them to remember? Because they were totally unaware of what was coming. 
But he and his providence and his plan wanted to prepare them for this time of silence. So look with me in Malachi chapter 4. We're going to look, we're going to read the whole chapter this morning. Now it's only six verses, so it won't take us very long. But look with me there in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi the prophet prophesies this. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so to leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God that speaks. And that you are a God that cares for us in the deepest times of our life and in and through the greatest joys of our lives. So, Father, we've come into this place this morning, needy people. Help us be reminded that we are in need of you. Some are here today in desperate need of hearing from you because their lives right now are going through difficult times. Some right now are going through times in their lives where they have forgotten how to hear you. And I pray, God, in these next few moments that your word would speak and that our ears would listen and that we would hear what you have to say. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we begin this morning, as we look to begin contemplating the blank page, I want us to take a few moments and look at the content of this last message that Jesus gives, or that God gives his people before he enters into this time of silence. And we can see beginning in verse 1 that he spends time focusing in on the future. He says, this is what it is going to look like. And he's going, he gives their two endings. He says, there's an end of doom for the wicked, for those that are rebellious against God, who have never bent their knee to the Savior, those that have never come to a place of placing faith in Jesus Christ. He describes their life. He says, their end is doom. And he gives some vivid imagery about that. He says, all evildoers, they don't have to do a whole, their whole life is not full of evil, but even if they do evil one time in their lives, their lives will be stubble. He says, goes on and says, not only will they be destroyed, but they will have no branch, nor will they have no root. So they will be utterly destroyed. So there's an end of doom for the, the wicked. But then he also says, there's the end of delight for the righteous. Look at me in verse 2. But he says, but, so there is pain, there is doom, there is wickedness, but for those who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You know, we live in a world that's broken. We live in a world where there's lots of pain, there's lots of feeling, there's lots of anger, there's lots of hurt. And I'm sure if you take just a few moments this morning to look at your life and do a quick inventory, you know that there's pain and there's maybe regret or maybe there's brokenness that you've experienced this week or that you're continually experiencing in your life. And we see here that those that are righteous, those that find their hope in God, he says there will come a time when there will be healing. 
Those that are righteous will receive healing. So all of brokenness, all of the pain will go away. So he focuses on the future. But he also gives us a path to righteousness. He says, so this is what will await those that are righteous. And then he says, this is the path. This is how you become righteous. He says it right there in verse 4. This has been the path that he's laid out for his people throughout all eternity. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. You see, what the reality of of verse 4 is, is that when we come to the place where we place faith in God, we surrender our lives, we surrender our hearts to God, and we allow him to work out obedience in our lives. So when we find ourselves not trying to attain the laws that God gave Moses, the Ten Commandments, but when we find ourselves living them out because God has come into our lives, we know then that we are righteous. Not as though we're trying to earn favor with God, but as though God is working out this thing in us. That's the path of righteousness. But we also see the content of this last message. We see that there is a promise of a Messiah. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So before the end comes, before it is too late, for the the righteous and the unrighteous will be divided. He says, "Before, before that day comes, I promise you I will send Elijah a prophet. And this, this prophet Elijah, which is pointing to Christ, what he will do is he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And so he says, when he comes, he will provide a way so that this broken world can begin to experience healing. He says, this is a time that is going to come. So as, as Malachi is prophesying, he's saying, this is going to come. And we know that from eternity past, God has continued to unfold his plan. From the moment in which man and woman, or man in himself, fell in the garden, God has been pointing to this point in which he would send someone to pay the penalty for death, or pay the penalty for sin, and provide forgiveness for those who have sinned. He would send a redeemer that would come and take away the sins of the world. And so Malachi, as he is ending here, and as God is preparing for these 400 years of silence, we see that he gives these last words. This Elijah that was to come was going to be a prophet, was going to be a priest, and was going to be a king. And Malachi is reminding the people, and then they enter into silence. For 400 years, God chooses not to speak. So to help us really understand, so we understand the content of the message, let's, let's look at the context of this message. Where have the people of God come from? We know that if we look back to the Old Testament, we see that God began in this plan of redemption, this plan of redeeming a people. What he did is he, he called a certain people unto himself. He was a God that called them unto himself and gave them a special kind of love. He had a special affection toward them. And he says, you will, I will be your God and you will be my people. Follow me all the days of your life and you will have me. You will have all of me. But in the process of this, he gave them certain guidelines. That result, and these guidelines would result in relationships. So if you continued and you lived inside of these bounds... These guidelines, you will have a relationship with me. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will have all of me if you remain inside of these guidelines. 
And we know that throughout the Old Testament, God continued to send prophets. He continued to send prophets so that, that a man would send out his, the words of God to his people. So the prophet would come, and God would say this through the prophet. He would say, you need to know this. And so the prophets were used to guide God's people, to remind them, to encourage them, to live in the bounds of this relationship. But we know that they continually didn't. That God's people continually did not live inside of those bounds. So God would continue to send other prophets and more prophets and more prophets. And God sometimes would bring about his correction to woo his people back to himself. But we also see throughout the Old Testament, part of God's plan was that he was going to give them a king. He gave them a king in order to lead them. He says, if you want to know the way to go, follow your king. But the problem is, we see throughout the Old Testament, is the kings were wicked. They turned their hearts from the Lord and turned it unto themselves. And in fact, turn the people of God away from God. So we see this process taking place in the Old Testament. Another thing that God provided for his people is he gave them a priest. He says the priest is the one that is going to be a mediator between God and man. The priest is the one that's going to offer the sacrifices for your sin. And so we see the priests mediating. So that's where they came from. But we see when we, when we open up the, the scene of Malachi... God's people had had a various uh, full history past. And when we open up Malachi, what we see is Israel, God's people, these special people are back in Palestine. They're they're back in the land that God had given them. They just come out of Babylonian captivity because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience, because they went outside the bounds of the relationship. God, in his correcting, loving way, said, I'm going to send you out. And I'm going to place you in Babylon for a certain time where you will be a captive to them, and then I will call you back. And so we see that as Malachi begins, God's people have been brought back. The temple of God has been, that that Solomon built has been destroyed and now has been rebuilt. But we see now that they are under, not only, they're out of Babylon captivity, but by the time Malachi begins, they're now under the great world power of Persia. Persia rules the land. They are the nation of the day. The known world is owned by Persia, and God's people now are still under subjection to Persia. Though they're not in captivity, so they're living in a a relatively quiet life, they still have another government that is over them. As I said, the temple has been restored. And we see that God, in this time, has given his people a prophet. He's given him Micah to challenge them. Even though we know that, or Malachi, we know that Malachi itself is not the, the, the last, um, by, uh, the, test, the last um, passage in the Old Testament. We know that the book of Chronicles is actually, uh, takes up more of the Old Testament. So it's actually the latest book that was written in the Old Testament. But we know that the, the book of Malachi is the last prophetic word that God gives his people. We see, so they, they, Malachi was the prophet. We see that there was a priest in the day. So the priests were still continuing to carry out the sacred rites that the law of Moses described. So we see the priests continuing to do that. And the priests that were serving could trace their lineage all the way back to Aaron. So in that way, they were continuing to be obedient to the laws and to the guidelines that God had laid out. We see that the king that God has given his people, the king was supposed to be Zerubbabel, but because the Persian Empire was in control, Zerubbabel wasn't on the throne. There was no king of Israel that was reigning and ruling over his people. And lastly, we see as this, the context of this, we see the people of God, they were unified at this time. 
but they were crippled through weakness and formalism. You see, this relationship with the God of the universe had turned into a religious mechanism. They were going through the motions and they were doing the things that they were supposed to do, but their hearts and their minds were far from God. And so they enter into this time of silence. And if we turn from Malachi over just to the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, I think it's important for us today to understand what took place, what is the, the, the scene and what is the condition of the people of God during this time or at the end of this time of 400 years of silence. So as we look to the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, we see that the world has changed drastically. In this 400 years, the Persian Empire is completely gone. There's no longer the Persian Empire anywhere in the world. Instead, what has taken in their place is the Roman Empire has come into power, and now they dominate the world. We see the people of God still do not have the right to, to govern themselves sovereignly. They are still under the control of Rome. We see now that they do have a king that is on the throne. God, God has sovereignly allowed uh, the people of God to be positioned, but the king that's on the throne is King Herod, Herod the Great. And the challenge with King Herod the Great is that Herod himself was not a descendant of Jacob, but he is a descendant of Esau. And we know what happens with Herod the Great. If we look to Matthew chapter 2, we see Herod the Great as he's ruling over God's people. When he hears that this Messiah has come, that this, this one that has been prophesied, what does he try to do? Instead of honoring this king, what does he seek to do? He seeks to have the king, or he seeks to have this baby killed. Desperate situation. So we see, not only was there a king, but we see the high priest of God's people at the beginning of the New Testament. The high priest that sits in ruling over God's people is a religious authority, and he's no longer from the line of Aaron. So somewhere during that 400-year period, the people of God, the priest of God, the people of God, has gone away from the guidelines that God has set up. And so now long, no longer is he a descendant of Aaron, but he's become somewhat of a political religious authority. He was a hired person, not a chosen person, not a called person, but a hired person that was chosen based on his political allegiance, not based on his relationship with God. And we see until... John the Baptist comes in Matthew and in John. We see that there was no prophet during that 400 years. So there was no word from God. We also know that the temple, the temple was still the center of Jewish life by the beginning of the New Testament. But the, the challenge has been is that people, because they have been scattered throughout the region, find that it's difficult for them to make a pilgrimage to the the center to the temple. So instead what they do on the basis of convenience is they've set up and begun setting up synagogues in their towns, in their little places where they live. So they no longer have to come all the way to the temple, but they can worship God in their little synagogues. We also know that the people of God by the beginning of the New Testament were no longer unified. 
Three factions or three parties basically brought themselves into prominence in and among the people of God. You see, they were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the conservative ones that focused in on the traditions and legalistic practices of the law of the Old Testament. So they would go to the Old Testament. They knew the law of the Old Testament, and they would set up a set of rules that said, if you want to be close to God, you have to do this, this, and this, and this. But if you violate them at all, you're no longer close to God, and you are dirty, and you are rotten, and we do not want to have any part of you. And so they had come to the place of where they had made this relationship with God all about religious practices. So there were the Pharisees. We also see that there were Sadducees, and the Sadducees were the liberal Greek lovers, is what they were known as. They believed no longer in the supernatural, so they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe that when, when God says that he parted the Red Sea and God's people walked through on dry ground, they didn't believe that. So they had left the miracles and the miraculous of God. But then we also see that the Essenes. These were the Jews that went down in Samaria and intermarried with, with those that were there. These were the radicals. They, they were always continually looking to overthrow the Roman government. They were the ones that were going to lead a revolt against the government. And you know, what's most shocking to me as I contemplate what the difference between the people of God at the end of the Old Testament and the people of God at the beginning of the Old Testament, it's shocking and it's scary the way that they allowed themselves to enter into this place. You see, they totally lost the ability to hear God. They no longer had a desire to hear God. But they had allowed this religious mechanism to take over. See, it's important for us to understand how they got there. You see, during this 400 years of silence, God knew exactly what he was doing. He was very active during this time. He was setting the scene for a savior to come. And he was allowing this time of silence to be a test. He had already given his people all that they needed to know to live lives that were godly. They had needed nothing else. They were just waiting for a savior to come. But they had everything. They had all the revelation. They knew everything that they needed to have this relationship with God. And we see that God's people failed. He told them what to do, and time and time and time again, they failed. And I believe during this 400 years where God was no longer giving them prophets, he was no longer giving them new revelation, I believe they entered into this time of what I would like to call, and I think Casting Crowns calls in their song, a slow fade. You see, slowly what began to happen is they began to exchange the truth of God for the traditions and teachings of man. They began to build the foundations of their lives, not on the words and the promises of God, but the words and the promises of men. And so year after year, they continued to allow more voices in their lives to take center stage for their lives. So they allowed the voices of their parents to begin to speak. They allowed the voices of not godly men to speak into their lives. And they're they're surrounding themselves with all these voices that are telling them, this is how you find happiness. This is how you find peace. This is how you find peace with God. This is what you need to do in order to live a life that is full and meaningful. And as they allowed more voices into their heads and into their ears, they began to drown out the voice of God. And they began to take on this identity of self-sufficiency, where they began to, to trust in a religious system. And they believed that how they lived and what they did, if they did more good in their lives than they did bad, then somehow on this cosmic scale, they would be able to stand righteous before a holy God. 
We see what God was doing, though. He's bringing them into a place of desperation. Because we see that by the beginning of the Old Testament, these religious leaders, these Pharisees that were trying to live out the law had come to the place where they realized that it was futile. Even though they weren't saying it with their mouths, they were continuing to tell the people to live these rules and then you'll be close to God. They knew in their hearts they couldn't do it because when they came to Jesus and they said, teacher of the law, what is it that, what's one law that I can do in order to be saved or to find favor with God? You see, what they had done is is they had developed all these laws and all these rules. They knew they couldn't keep them. So when they they pressed Jesus one day, they realized that they said to themselves, you know what? If we can just have one law, if we can keep one law our whole entire lives, then we'll be right with God. Not the whole law, but just one law. And so they, they tested Jesus. And Jesus tells them, he says this, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind, then if you keep that law, then you'll have peace with God. And he says the second is just like that. Not only do you love God, but if you love your neighbor as yourself, therein lies the whole reality of the law. So even though they slowly faded, they were desperately desperately in need of a savior. And we can see through the reality of the New Testament, some heard And some were changed. But we also know that some weren't changed. So I want us to leave us with the last few moments taking a couple implications of God's last message. If you're here today and you're listening to this word of God, I want to encourage you and encourage myself. Let us be reminded not to follow the same path. Let us not follow the same path that God's people did in, this, in their 400 years of silence. For we know that we ourselves are waiting for Christ to return. We ourselves are, are in some way of an advent ourselves. We're in a, a, a time in which God has spoken. God has shown us the way. But yet, he's told us to wait. There is a, kind, a time when he comes and he will return and he will finally heal our broken world. And maybe in your life, you've gone through times where you feel like God has been silent. Maybe it's brought you to a point of frustration. Maybe because of the challenges of your life. Maybe you've gone through a loss. Maybe you've lost a loved one. You've lost a job or you've gone through the challenges of life and life just hurts. You've gone through times of disappointment and you've cried out in those moments of desperation, those moments of quietness saying, God, where are you? And maybe you feel like he's been silent. But I want to remind you this morning that God is not silent. God has not, is not silent and was not silent. He has not left us here on our own to try and figure this thing out. But he has spoken to us and speaks to us very plainly. And maybe you can't hear the voice of God because you're at a place in your life where you've allowed and you've entertained a lot of other voices. Voices that are telling you peace is found here, happiness is found here. And you've lived your life trying to honor those voices instead of the voice of God. Or maybe you're here today and you can't hear God's voice because you don't know his voice and you don't know him. 
For Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 27, he says this, and this is a promise, but it's also a word of correction. He says, my sheep, those that know me, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So God is speaking. And if we know him, we are his sheep. We hear his voice. He tells us what he wants us to do. We listen to his voice. He knows us. We know him. And we show that by following him. I want to remind us and give us some truths from scriptures that God is not silent. Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, reminds us that God continually is speaking through creation. Let me read this for you. The promise is this, for the since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What Paul is saying is here is all you have to do is look at creation, look at the created order and you know that there is a God. It has been written on your heart because we are created by God by just looking at those things and we can say to ourselves, I cannot do that. I cannot make the sun rise. I cannot make the sun set. I cannot make the wind blow. I cannot make the rain fall from the sky. And because of the way we look at creation, I must know that there is a God, there's someone bigger, there's someone better than me. So God has spoken through his creation. We know in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that God speaks through his word. So we have the word of God that he speaks through. All scriptures, God breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you realize that God has given us the Bible so that we can know him? There's no question, no doubt, especially us in America who have access to the word of God on our phones, on the internet, in our hands. There's no reason that we should not know God. There's no reason that we should not press deep into the words of God, into the book of God, into the revelation of God so that we should know him we have it you know my heart breaks for those people in other countries right now that have no access to the gospel that have no hope they see in creation they know in creation that there is a God but they have no idea how to know him because they don't have the word of God but for those of us that do we know that he speaks through his word the writer of Hebrews tells us also that he he speaks through his son Let me read this to you. In Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verses 1 and 2, the writer says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he has also created the world. So the writer of Hebrews reminds us that as Jesus has come, that he is the prophet. He is the one that has proclaimed to us the way back to God. So there is no need. We don't need to know if there's any other way to heaven, if there's any other God. Jesus Christ himself is our prophet. He has shown us the word of God. So Jesus came as our prophet. Jesus also came as our priest. Because Jesus became our sacrifice for us. For the Bible has continually reminded us over and over and over again. When we rebel against God, when we go outside of these guidelines that God has given us for relationship, when we say to God, God, I do not need you, that is called sin. And there must be a payment for sin. And the Bible reminds us over and over and over again, the only payment for sin is life and the shedding of blood. 
And so Jesus himself becomes that sacrifice. He gave of his life. His body was broken for us and his blood was spilled for us. He became our sacrifice. But we also see that Jesus has come to be our king. When we surrender to his leadership, when we surrender to his kingship, he promises that he will lead us. You see, God has spoken and continues to speak. But in order to hear, we must place ourselves in a proper position to hear him. There are three things that I want to remind us as we close. God is speaking, but in order to hear him speak, first we must be silent. We must stop talking. We must come to a place where we stop trying to plead our case before God. Where instead of coming to God saying, God, I've done more good than I've done bad. Please show favor. Please show grace on me. Please shower blessings on me. Please shower blessings on my family. Please shower blessings on my business because I've honored you. I've done these things. Instead of coming to a place where we go to God pleading our case, we come to God in silence. Where we drown out all those other competing voices and we come back to that silent night where Jesus was in a manger. And we, in that moment, we come back to the side of that manger and we look in the face of God and we marvel that God became flesh and he dwelt among us so that he could save us from our sins. Then we read the book of the the Bible, we read the New Testament, we read the Gospels, and then every single page, we look at Jesus and we see him being obedient in our place doing the things that we could not do on our own. And then in the end of the Gospels, we see him dying the death that we deserve. We see him going to the cross in our place. Though he didn't deserve it, though he was perfect, though he was spotless, he goes to the cross in our place and dies our death and pays our price. Then we go to the very last pages of the Gospels and we see him rising from the dead providing a promise that we can experience the same thing. Jesus offers us, because of his his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, he provides for us an offer to have a restored relationship with God. So we must understand that. We must be silent, but we also must bow our knee. It's not enough just to know this in our heads. You can't just know that Jesus did all these things, but we must come to the place where in our hearts, in the center of our being, we must bow our knees. We come to the place where we admit that we are sinners. We admit that we have rebelled. We admit that we lived our lives as though we don't need God. We know what's best for us. And so we come to the place where we say, you know what, I've rebelled against you, God. I admit it. And we come to the place where in worship we bow before him and we give over control of our lives to him. And then lastly, we follow him. With our lives, we say, God, I want to follow you. So the question to us today, first of all, is Have you come to the place where you've knelt at the foot of the cross and you say, God, I give it up? Maybe your decision today as we come to the time of the end of the sermon time is maybe you need to come to the place where you come to Christ this Christmas, 
where you see him for who he is, not just a babe in a manger, but a one that has come to reconcile us and to redeem us back to God. If that's you, I'm going to be around and you can come grab me and you can say, say, Pastor, I want to know more about Jesus. Tell me how I can have this relationship and I'd love to share with you. Or maybe you've come with a, a friend or a family member and maybe this afternoon as you guys are eating lunch, you want to just spend a few moments talking about that. It's just saying, hey, Pastor Jeff was talking about that. I want to know a little bit more about that. Tell me your story of how you came to the place of where you surrendered your life to Christ. But lastly, if you're here and you have already come to know Christ, then this week I want to encourage you as we march towards Christmas, then in this week I want to encourage you to find a time of quietness. Come into the place before the Lord where you're quiet before the Lord and contemplate and remember that silent night. Remember Christ becoming flesh and dwelling among us and spend a few moments contemplating what he has done for you and spend a few moments showing and remembering how he has changed you. So spend a few moments with the Lord. In a silence, in silentness. Contemplate what he's done, how he's changed you. Then let what you experience in that time overflow into your joyous celebration this Christmas season. Let that what you experience in that in that time overflow into your celebrations. As you celebrate with your family, that's good. As you celebrate with your friends, that's good. As you give each other gifts and as you share in meals together and you share in times together and you're doing this stuff, let the overflow from your time with the Lord shine so that your friends and your family and others around you can see the face of Christ in you. Be encouraged this Christmas for Christ has come and he's coming again. And he wants us to experience this life in joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. And thank you for giving us your words. And Father, I know that today we come to the place where we've heard your word. And Father, it's not good enough just to hear the words and to to leave unchanged. But Father, I pray that as you have been speaking, I pray that you continue to speak in these next few minutes. And allow us to take care of our business before you. Maybe there's things in our lives, voices in our lives that you reveal to us that are standing in the way. May in the next few moments we just confess them to you and allow you to take them away. Or maybe we're here and we just don't know you at all. I pray in these next few minutes, Father, that your spirit would move and they would call us and they would draw us and bring us to the place of where we trust you as our Lord and our Savior. Help us to respond however you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.